Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan, and today I'm here with one of our PGY2 residents, Ilya Alyarov. Ilya, welcome to Core EM. Thanks for having me, Swami. It's great to be here. So Ilya, you recently gave a fantastic talk on HIV in the ED, and obviously it's a pretty big topic, but I thought that maybe we could distill this down to a couple of major teaching points. Sound good to you? Sounds good to me. Let's do it. All right. So I'm going to give you the teaching point and you're going to give the information behind it. So point number one, consider acute HIV infection in patients with nonspecific viral symptoms. The CDC recommends one-time testing for HIV in patients age 13 to 64, but you should be testing your high-risk patients at least annually, including men who have sex with men. So with that being said, look for risk factors like MSM patients, injection drug users who share needles, patients with multiple sexual partners, people who have had blood transfusions before 1985, or patients born to HIV-positive mothers. But, you know, anyone can contract HIV and you got to be vigilant because in the acute phase, it looks like a generic flu-like illness. So we mentioned this back on podcast 130 as a pearl from our morning report series. We mentioned it again because it's really critical to have this as a consideration because in this phase, patients have high viral loads and are extremely likely to spread the disease. So Ilya, if we're going to test, what test should we be getting? Most ERs now have the P24 antigen and HIV antibody testing, which can detect early disease. If that's positive, you get a confirmatory Western blot. But because seroconversion can take time, if the test is negative, I tell all my patients to get repeat testing at least 45 days after their suspected exposure. If you don't have this fourth generation antigen antibody test, then get that repeat test 90 days after exposure. All right. That's a great tip because I actually thought it was 30 days. So this has already changed what I'm doing. So great point. Consider acute HIV infection in patients with nonspecific viral illness and know what your assay is and make sure that you get the follow-up that they need as well. Point number two, there are a number of CNS pathologies that we have to consider in patients with HIV and AIDS when patients present with seizures, altered mental status, or focal neurologic deficits. But the patients that often get missed are the ones who come in with a new onset or new pattern of headache. Many of these opportunistic diseases like cryptococcosis, toxoplasmosis, primary CNS lymphoma, they have presentations that are more subacute than the typical bacterial infections we see. So they can be subtle. One study of 110 ED patients demonstrated 100% sensitivity for focal lesions in HIV positive patients who had at least one of the following. Headache with different quality than usual, headache longer than three days, new seizure, or altered mental status. All right, let's dive into the new headache just a bit more. We're pretty good about identifying high-risk features of headaches that would steer us towards a workup. Sudden onset, maximal onset, associated neurologic features, fever, stiff neck, or altered mental status. In HIV patients, the high-risk feature is the immunocompromised state itself. Any new headache or new headache pattern in HIV patient who's got a low CD4 count means CT and an LP. That's a crucial point. Remember, it's important to get a CT before these LPs to rule out a mass lesion, and don't forget to check an opening pressure. These patients with a CD4 count below 200, even if they appear non-toxic, just test them. Always send a cell count, protein, glucose, and culture, and consider India ink and cryptococcal antigen and, and viral and fungal cultures. 
That's a great point. And I think that we have to have a very low threshold to do that LP. The way I've always thought about LPs, Ilya, is that if I have to spend more than 30 seconds convincing myself not to do the LP, I probably have to do the LP. These patients, they're all getting CT. If the CT doesn't show anything, they probably should be getting an LP. Point number three, infectious respiratory symptoms can be caused by all of the -the run-of-the-mill cap organisms or bronchitis, but we also have to consider things like TB, PCP, CMV, cryptococcal, and histoplasmosis in the HIV patient. There's an increased risk for bacterial pneumonia and TB at all CD4 counts, so these patients should be kept in respiratory isolation. In those with CD4 counts below 200, consider PCP. In severely immunocompromised, consider fungal infections like cryptococcus, histoplasma, and coccidioides. PCP, again, deserves a little bit more attention. As you mentioned, patients with a CD4 count under 200 are at risk. If these patients are closely followed, they're going to be on prophylaxis, but that doesn't 100% protect people from developing PCP. So, Ilya, what symptoms are going to tip us off that the patient might have pneumocystis pneumonia? Unfortunately, these patients can present atypically, and they can't always be distinguished from bacterial pneumonia or TB based on symptoms or even their chest X-ray. But watch for subacute presentation of fever, dry cough, fatigue, dyspnea on exertion, or hypoxia. Unexplained hypoxia is a big one. That's definitely one that we have to be keyed in on. Tuberculosis is another tricky one here. Any HIV-positive patient with hemoptysis, weight loss, night sweats, or a concerning exposure history should be evaluated for TB. Unlike with many other opportunistic infections, HIV patients can get TB even at pretty high CD4 counts. Right. HIV-positive patients are more likely to get TB and also to activate latent disease. In an immunocompetent patient, a negative chest X-ray pretty much rules out pulmonary TB. But in an immunocompromised patient, the typical symptoms of TB may be absent, the chest X-ray may be unimpressive, and the PPD may be non-reactive. Have a high degree of suspicion and consider admitting patients for respiratory isolation and sputum AFBs and cultures. That brings us to point number four, CURB-65 and the PORT score, which are common clinical decision aids to decide who with pneumonia needs to come in or be discharged, may not be applicable to HIV-positive patients. That's a great point. These patients were excluded from the initial derivation studies and the subsequent validation studies, so we shouldn't be using these scores to risk stratify them. Make sure to communicate with the primary care or ID doc to ensure close follow-up. Admit if you're concerned about compliance and Always consider PCP and TB, which can mimic bacterial pneumonia. Point number five, in patients with an unknown recent CD4 count, you can use the total lymphocyte count as an estimate. The CD4 count and viral load are critical in identifying advanced disease and risk stratifying these patients. The challenge is that often recent values may not be available to the ED physician. Some studies suggest an absolute lymphocyte count calculated using the white blood cell count on a CBC multiplied by the lymphocyte percentage and dividing by 100 can be used as a surrogate for the CD4 count. The most important number to remember is a total lymphocyte count less than 1,200 correlates with a CD4 count less than 200 with high specificity. There's studies on both sides of this saying that this method is pretty good and others saying that it's kind of meh. Rebelcast did an extensive review of this topic back in July 2014. We'll drop a link to that in the show notes. And Ilya, I think you're kind of right. This isn't perfect, but sometimes it's what you got. It's what you have to work with. And so you have to rely on what you can do. We rarely can get a quick turnaround on CD4 counts or the viral load. And so sometimes we have to rely on what we can use. And I think if I had a total lymphocyte count under 1200 on a patient who 
who didn't know their CD4 or their viral load, I would assume that they're pretty immunocompromised and work them up from that standpoint. It's going to be a lot safer. So obviously, Ilya, you had a lot of fantastic points in your talk. Let's review them all one more time. Sure. So let's go through the take-home points. Number one, consider HIV testing in all patients presenting with a nonspecific viral syndrome and particularly in those patients with significant risk factors. Number two, perform an LP in any HIV patient with a new onset or new pattern headache and get the CT prior to LP. Number three, think about PCP in an HIV patient with a CD4 count less than 200 and any unexplained hypoxia. Number four, pulmonary TB is tricky in HIV patients and can occur regardless of the CD4 count and can be present even with a normal chest X-ray. If the patient has any high-risk features, isolate and work up. Number five, CURB-65 and the PORT score weren't evaluated in HIV-positive patients, so don't use these tools for disposition of CAP patients with HIV. Number six, if you don't have a recent CD4 count on hand, a total lymphocyte count can be used to estimate the CD4 count. It's particularly good in telling you if the patient has a CD4 count greater than 200, but not as good in telling you that the CD4 count is below that number. All right, that's all for the CoreM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google Plus, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.